welcome to the show. And if you're a returning listener, thank you for coming back. And if you're a new listener, well, I hope you enjoy what you hear. And I often use the word amazing when I'm talking about my guests and the things that they do. And today's guest is no exception. In fact, amazing is probably not a strong enough word. His story is unbelievable, miraculous, incredible. I, I don't know if words can actually describe this one, but uh, again, my goal with this show, as always, is to entertain, educate, and inspire people. And my guest today, Nick Grimsman, has a book. And in this book, he talks about all these things that he's done. I think he's done all those things in spades. Uh, you're definitely going to be entertained, inspired, and educated. I think you'll learn a lot from this one. I've read a lot of biographies, and I've talked to a lot of people who have lived crazy lives, rock stars, movie stars. But I think Nick's story takes the cake. And I really think it could be a Hollywood movie. He starts off, he joins the infamous Tony Alamo cult. He is then diagnosed with an incurable disease, schizophrenia, and then he's cured of schizophrenia. Then he has a viral video. Now he's engaged to a Latin pop star. I mean, you couldn't write a, a better movie here. So I've worked in mental health before, and I don't think people realize how rare it is to conquer schizophrenia. And uh, it's usually a lifelong disability for many people. So it truly is astonishing that Nick was able to defeat it. And we're going to discuss some of how he did that in the interview. Uh, but you really need to check out his books, uh, two of them. Defeating Mental Illness is the first book. It's a very short book. Um, and then his latest one, Becoming God's Friend, it's really his full biography. And that way you'll get the full story and get all the details. Um, but besides being an author, Nick is also a Christian preacher. And his Christianity is a big part of what helped him with his struggles with mental illness. So just to warn you, you got to have these trigger warnings now. He is going to talk a lot about that in the Bible and Jesus in this episode. So I know some people don't want to hear that, and that's okay. Uh, full disclosure, I myself am not a practicing Christian, uh, but I personally think it's important to hear different viewpoints and different beliefs. And that's why I have this show. I really enjoy hearing people's stories and beliefs, especially when they're different than my own. If everyone was the same as me, I feel like this show would be really boring. Um, but whether you share Nick's spiritual beliefs or not, I think you'll find his story fascinating and inspiring. And I think for some people, uh, Christianity or other religions can be extremely helpful for their lives. And whether you believe in it or not, I think we can all agree it's a good thing if it can help somebody else. And it certainly has helped Nick. So I'll let you let him tell the story. Welcome, Nick Grimsman, to the Chuck hey, Shoot Podcast. Going? How are you doing? Hey, Chuck. Thanks for having me, man. Appreciate yeah. Thanks for being on. Yeah, this is exciting. Well, uh, full disclosure. Yes, we do know each other. We've been we grew up in the long same time. neighborhood, been friends for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Long time. I think uh, I think I first met you when you were in seventh grade, maybe eighth grade. And I was like in fifth or sixth. That so sounds about right. Yeah. yeah, I even and so you've written this book and uh, I'm even in the book. I think you put yeah, a picture. Yeah, you got a picture in there. I got a picture in there. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's a crazy story. Uh, so I just want to, yeah. let's just dive right in and go through. I mean, this is like, Sounds good. I always, you know, tell people a little bit about the, the person I have on their background, but this, the, the your book is like basically an autobiography. So it's going to be, we're going to go through everything, your whole background, your whole life story. And, wow. uh, there's some crazy stuff in here. I mean, having schizophrenia, a viral lightning video. Yeah. Uh, used to have schizophrenia, Chuck. Yeah. Beating schizophrenia, yeah. which used to have schizophrenia, <laughs> which is amazing as someone who's worked in mental yeah. health. Um, you know, you learn that schizophrenia is an incurable disease. And so we'll get to all that stuff. You joined a cult with, uh, Tony Alamo's cult. So that, that's a, yeah. 
a very well-known cult. And uh, I mean, there's just a lot of things where you couldn't write a better Hollywood script. They, they might turn this book into a movie. Oh, maybe, maybe. I don't know. It's pretty <laughs> wild. My life keeps getting uh, more wild. So maybe I'll write another autobiography in a couple of years. Yeah. For this, these years I've been going through. So this right. autobiography is called uh, Becoming God's Friend. And it's really a journey, my life journey from childhood all the way to 40 years old. So I'm currently about to be 41, but I worked on this book for a while and um, it's totally transparent where I literally told everything in my whole life, uh, jail, um, when I, uh, you know, I got arrested, uh, I think uh, in Mexico one time. So the jail stuff I've had, uh, you know, the uh, bout with mental health issues, deep depression, schizophrenia, the cult, um, pretty much anything and everything is in that book. So I, I just wrote it because I really want to bring hope to individuals. So I called it becoming God's friend because, um, I'm a Christian, I'm a minister and I used to be a nightclub bartender before that, but we'll get into all that but I just want to bring hope to people. So I wrote the, my life story down. Yeah. And it's really fascinating. And I got to tell you, I mean, I've interviewed rock stars. I've interviewed movie stars and TV stars and all sorts of, you know, famous people. But this book is like, it's, I mean, it tops a lot of those, their stories as well because of, of so many Thanks. crazy things that happened to, that you happen to go through. Um, but yeah, yeah so, and then you, it. what's that? I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting. You have an interesting way to define some of the stuff in the book. You, you call these like, uh, what do you call the evil spirits, the misters. And at first I was like, I don't understand what he's talking about the misters, but basically what you're doing is you're, um, I would say you personify things like Mr. Cigarettes, Mr. Rejection, Mr. Self-righteousness, Mr. Depression, all these like emotions and things that you're dealing with. You, you kind of give them a, a name, like they're a person. Yeah. So, um, through my life, I had to deal with a lot of different types of issues, anxiety being one of them, rejection, like you said, rebellion. And my book starts off, uh, when I was, I think it was seventh or no, it was 13. So I think it was seventh grade. I was, uh, riding, uh, the bus home from school. And there was a young lady that went to our school, uh, and she was, uh, walking down the street with her friends and she lit a cigarette. And, uh, I, I remember the thought in my head and it came to me, uh, why does somebody my age want to smoke cigarettes? You know, cause my mother smoked, my father smoked. So, and I was a kid, I was like, why would anybody smoke? But when I got home, that thought stuck with me and it was like, it just wouldn't leave. And I went and I tried my mom's cigarette in the, in the ashtray. And that was when, you know, I made friends with what I call Mr. Cigarettes. So it's like a, a friend. Cause I look at, I, I look back into my childhood and I remember sitting in the forest uh, near my, my home and uh, in Issaquah, Washington, where you're from. And uh, I used to sit in the forest and I'd be suffering from anxiety or uh, feeling rejected by uh, people or whatever. And I go in the forest and I'd smoke this, you know, uh, cool back then they were cool. K O O L. I don't know if you heard of those, but cools. And I'd smoke these uh, menthol cigarettes. And I remember uh, like almost talking to myself kind of, hmm. and it was like, Mr. Cigarettes became my friend. And so I go and have a cigarette with Mr. Cigarettes. And so that's kind of how I start the book. Cause I really want to explain in a simple terms, how um, we can almost befriend our behaviors and our emotions. So that's, yeah. And, kinda, and you, besides cigarettes, you start getting into weed and alcohol and all this stuff. And uh, I thought this was interesting too, that you talk about, you know, your insecurities and that how you were kind of a bully and uh, that this is rare because I, most bullies don't ever recognize that they're bullies and they never like admit it. And you seem to, 
you kind of like years later now that you, you can recognize that you were a bully and that how you hurt some people and you actually reached out to some of these people that you bullied and how did that yeah. go? Yeah. It's, um, it's something I'm not really proud of, you know? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I was sorry, getting a little emotional here, but you know, I didn't bully for that long. It was only maybe in middle school a little bit, mm-hmm. but I did it because I felt bad about myself. So I had this, uh, what I call Mr. Rejection. So rejection, it was like a rejection friend, a personality type that I go into, I'd feel rejected. And then this uh, prideful thing would uh, kind of come upon me and I called him Mr. Pride. And then I wanted to be friends with everybody. So I felt like picking on people would make other people laugh. Mm. And so I would pick on, uh, you know, uh, people and uh, to make other friends laugh and things like that, because it came from my own insecurity. But you're right. right. Yeah. Years later, I did reach out to, I tried to reach out to um, most everybody I could remember. Yeah. That's crazy. So you kind of get into the, you know, the teenage stuff, the smoking, the drinking, you become a bartender and this is so interesting. So you're a bartender and you're kind of living that lifestyle, but then you come home and you smoke weed and drink booze and you watch Christian TV. Now that is a weird combo. Like what drew you to the Christian TV as opposed to, because usually that's not the same it's a very, very two polarizing things there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the, you know, that's what uh, we think, you know, we think that, um, you know, uh, we think that a lot of times we think God is uh, far away from people who are struggling. Um, man, this is really emotional for me. Sorry. No, that's all right. Yeah. I mean, it, it definitely is. So, yeah. So, um, yeah, I remember being a bartender at a nightclub and, uh, I would come back and I, I you know, I'd have like a six pack of Heineken, and then a six pack of Smirnoff ice. Cause that was new back then. <laughs> and then, uh, <laughs> you know, I'd smoke a joint and I'd order a large pizza, It'd be like two in the morning. There's like one place that ordered pizza or you get pizza back then by the college. And, uh, <laughs> and I'd sit there and I'd flip through channels and I'd listen to preachers on TV. I would uh, watch the news. Cause this was, um, you know, uh, right after nine 11. So, you know, I had a lot of fear about, uh, the end of the world or nuclear war or terrorists. And, and so for some reason I started going to the movie store and trying to watch movies on aliens, on different religions. I was just looking for truth. And I would, I remember uh, watching Christian television in, in the movies and, and just crying. I remember just crying when I watched Jesus on the cross um, and uh, you know, performing miracles and things that really touched my heart, but I was stuck. You know, I was stuck with uh, just alcoholism and drugs, and I didn't know how to get out of it. You know, a lot of people don't know how to get out of, you know, their bad life choices. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So you, you, like you said, you researched all these religions. You were, I think you considered Islam for a little bit. You grew yeah. out your beard and you're looking at mosques yeah. and then you spoke to this nun. And then that's when you decided you, th- what is this the thing where you threw away all your stuff? The monk you, walk. Yeah. The monk walk. So explain this. You went from pouring drinks at a nightclub to walking yep. across the desert in a monk outfit with a shaved yeah. head. Totally. I mean, totally how- crazy. I know it's wild. Is there it's a picture totally of you strange. in this monk outfit? No, I wish there was though. It okay. was wild. Okay. So you have to get the book if you want it. The whole story. Yeah. Though. Yeah. I've never talked about the monk walk until I put it in the book. My mother used to always tell me you should t- talk about the monk walk because that was uh, just a really interesting time. So yeah, uh, yeah, I was a nightclub bartender, and all of a sudden, I uh, well, I I was doing research about religion and stuff like you said, and I was going to become uh, Muslim because you know you have Judaism, then you have Christianity, then you have Islam, and so I figured, well, if Islam's the last one, they must have the most truth, and so you know, I was just searching and. 
And so I was going to grow, I was growing my beard and I was going to join a mosque. And then, um, uh, and then I went on a prayer line and I, I, I prayed and, and I gave my life to Jesus and, and then I didn't become Muslim. But, um, but before that though, I was, uh, talking to a nun at a church. I went to a Catholic church and I was talking to a nun and I told her, you know, I just, I was crying because I felt so bad about myself, my addictions, the things I was doing. And, uh, I said, you know, I'm just going to be a monk. I'm going to, uh, just bypass being a priest. I'm going right to a monk. I'm going to go live in a, live in a monastery because I felt like I needed to be sinless to be able to earn heaven. And so, uh, that was, you know, I talk about this in the book, how these, uh, you know, your mindset about how you interact with God or who God is, uh, sometimes for me anyway, it was that I felt like I had to be completely sinless to be able to be good enough to enter heaven and so I would think about death a lot. And I think about my, my lifestyle and, and how I want to change, but it seems so hard. So I was like, I'm going to be a monk. She's like, you can't just be a monk after the school and all this stuff. <laughs> right, I was like, yeah. no, I'm going to be a monk. And so here I was bartending this fancy nightclub in Scottsdale, Arizona. And I just decided one day to write letters to my family and say, Hey, I'm going to go uh, live for God in this monastery. And I didn't tell them where it was at. I just said, I'll never see you again. I'm going to go live in a monastery. I got in my convertible Mustang. And well, first I sh- shaved my head at the barber, like completely bald, the whole head, like a monk. I had a monk costume. I had a big giant cross with Jesus <laughs> on hanging down. I had black pants on. I mean, I was a full blown wannabe monk. That's hilarious. So, yeah, so I walked through the desert and, you know, people can read the book. If they want. Yeah. I have to figure out the rest of that story, but that didn't yeah, work out. Fine. Obviously, you're not a monk. So then you decide yeah. uh, you, you're going to. No, what's that? Monk. I didn't. It didn't work out. Chuck. No, it didn't work out. So, but you find this flyer about this uh, other religion, the, the Tony Alamo stuff, and this yeah. found, uh, this is when you joined the cult. Basically, your dad even told you, "Hey, this is a cult. Don't go there." But you didn't yeah. listen to him, and so you end up joining this cult and explain this is a very uh, famous cult. I think there's documentaries about this cult and yeah. how bad it yeah. was. And they made you listen to this cassette that told you Tony Alamo is the savior. And if you go against him, you're going to hell. And I mean, it's brainwashing basically. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. The cassettes were all uh, fear-based. So, you know, with cults is very interesting is that um, you, you can control people through different ways, right? Uh, people control through, uh, uh, sex. So some cults are sexually oriented. So everything's sex related. Other cults are fear-based. So I was, um, I was in a cult that was fear-based. So I I joined this cult, as you said, is Tony Alamo, uh, cult. And it was in Arkansas. They also have an outpost over in, uh, Saugus, California, or they did. I don't know if they do anymore because he passed away in federal prison in 2017, mm-hmm. but he went to federal prison. I was only in the call for about six months until I cracked up and I ended up mentally ill. But yeah, the call was all fear-based. Uh, they, I, I moved there because I felt like they, uh, they, they offered a free place to stay if, if you want to serve God. So I was like, whoa, that goes kind of with the monk thing I was going to do. So I was like, oh, I can go there and become sinless. I can go live in this commune. And so I went and, and they provided everything for me. So I didn't have to worry about bills. I didn't have to worry about, um, you know, any sort of worldly type stuff. I could just do whatever the cult said. And so we'd pass out these tracks, these newsletters to everybody on the streets and try to get more people to join the cult. And it was, uh, it was a horrible, horrible experience, but I'm so thankful for the experience. I wouldn't go back and change it 
because I learned the, uh, the ins and outs of a cult and how not to be a cult leader. And so it makes me, I believe, a better minister of the gospel now, a better pastor, preacher, evangelist, whatever you call me. But it helps me understand what a what a cult is and how not to be a cult leader. And so, yeah, can that, you explain uh, the difference yeah. to people? Because I think this is a misconception that some people think every religion is a cult, and that you know that they when they think of Christians and church, they think like the fire and brimstone, you're going to hell, and all this. And yeah. that's very different than what you're doing. So explain the difference between that when people know they're actually in a real cult. Yeah. Um, so usually, so cults can be like cults of personality. So people. Um, you know, it happens a lot. People, let's say uh, they perform uh, miracles or fake miracles or however you look at it. And then people start coming to that person for answers and miracles. And then pretty soon that person exalts himself Mm. and starts making a bunch of rules for the people underneath them. Mm. And I I learned that people um, are looking for a savior. So everybody in the world is looking for God, looking for the answers. And so these mini, I call them mini cults. So there's mini cult leaders everywhere. You know, that let's say they're not branded a cult leader or a cult, but if you went to their location or whatever they do, you can kind of tell that they are a mini cult. And so uh, being in a full blown cult where you actually get brainwashed with sleep deprivation, like I did Mm -hmm. with uh, food, with lack of food, with the fear, with having to work every single day and not having a day off with getting up at 2 a.m. and then going back to sleep at 4 a.m. I mean, sleep deprivation, like I said, but I mean, that's a full blown cult. I lived with these people and I mean, they were like a, like a family. We, you know, we were like a family and it was, um, it was what I thought I wanted when I was, when I went in, I thought it was wonderful. I was like, wow, everybody here loves Jesus. And, you know, everybody, you know, follows the rules and everybody's not, you know, living in sin and all these things, but you find out that the leadership, they're all doing weird stuff. Like the cult leader, Tony Alamo ended up in federal prison because he was marrying like nine-year-old, 10-year-old girls. He had a harem in his, wherever he was at, I never met him face to face. He was in a different location than where I was at, mm-hmm. but he had a harem of little children and he would take them across state lines. And that's how they finally got him. Oh. So he would take them across state lines. And then there was a federal crime and they finally got him for being a, being a, um, a disgusting. A yeah. So, he's disgusting. Yeah, so. so, yeah. So they kind of like, um, cause what you kind of had, this is when you first had your mental breakdown and you think it was because you're yeah. living at this cult going through spiritual abuse, sleep deprivation, you're, you're running around. You're, you said, you know, putting these flyers on cars, but it yeah. was 12 hours. I don't know if you mentioned that part, Easy, easy. 12, 12 hours, hours a day, 12, 14 hours. Yeah. Yeah. So that's like most Every of your day. day. So you're, you're at this hotel in Nashville and you said that you felt like a, a spiritual, like a force land on your chest and it, it told <laughs> yeah. you to not talk and, uh, and, and if you did talk that you'd be sent to hell and, and you said it, you felt like you were in a paranormal film. Oh yeah. It, it felt like I had, um, so imagine laying on a, laying on your hotel bed, you're tired. You you're about to fall asleep. All of a sudden you feel like this entity sit on your chest and enter into your heart area, your chest bone area, like in the middle of your chest. And then you could hear it talk to you inside you. That's how I, that's how I felt it. And, you know, people might be listening to this and think this dude's crazy. <laughs> I'm telling you that's yeah. that happened to me. I don't know if it was a demon or if it was just my own mind because I was having a mental health breakdown. Yeah. You, you know, the listener can try to discern that one, but sure. for me, it was real and it was scary. And it, it, it talked to me, told me to not talk. I was going to burn in hell forever that I was holy and I was not to sin ever again, or I was going to burn in hell and I needed to. Uh, you know, listen to 
to it or else. And what did and the so, what did the voice sound like? Was it like demonic like this, or was it just was it like a normal voice or? Yeah. So with schizophrenia, so I had schizophrenia in the past. Um, and so, uh, the voices that I used to hear sounded like myself. Ah. They sounded like an internal voice. Huh? Yeah. So okay. it wasn't like uh, a different, I, and you know, I worked in the mental health field as an administrator, Yeah. you know, I worked in the mental health field for almost eight years. So uh, I've talked to all sorts of different types of hundreds and hundreds of mental uh, health patients. And some voices sound like them. Mm-hmm. Some voices sound like women. Some voices sound like growling. Some voices yeah. sound sweet. Some voices sound like men. So it just depends. I think each person's experience is different. And I think to be, you know, uh, a minister or a mental health counselor or whatever is to understand that each per individual person has a different, uh, you know, a different situation or experience with voices and, and spiritual things. Right. So this, but when you had this first break, you were scared and they actually called Tony Alamo on the phone. You got to talk to him on the phone and he just told you to, he mumbled something in an angry tone and said, forget it. And so this one, you said, screw this, I'm out of here. And you took your Bible and your driver's license and you, and you, you made a run for it and you went to yeah, you so the next to, day. Yeah. The, the next, next day. day okay. I ran out. Yeah, so then the you get to the, I ran out. yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, then you get to the airport and this is interesting. You thought that if the voices were telling you to preach and you thought that if you preached, you'd supernaturally be able to uh, transport it to oh, New pray, York city. Pray really loud. I had to pray, okay, really, pray loud really loud. In the middle of the, yeah. And it, and did, yeah, it didn't so, work though. Yeah. No, it didn't. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. So I was, uh, I had somehow ended up in the Nashville airport and I, I remember being on this green hill. It was like this grass hill and I was hearing voice and I was laying on this grass hill. I was hungry. I didn't know what I was doing. I, I was debating if I should go home or if I should go back to the cult. Um, I thought I lost my salvation. Cause if you leave the cult, they tell you you lost your salvation. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, cause that keeps you there, you know, it's a fear-based tactic that they tell you, you know, if you leave us, you've lost your salvation. You're going to go to hell forever, you know, that type of stuff. So, uh, I ended up inside the airport because I'd use a restroom. And when I was in the restroom, the voices told me, Hey, if you go out in the baggage claim area right there and start screaming prayers to God on your knees, we're going to translate you in front of the world trade center wreckage, you know, where they're rebuilding the world trade center. Um, and you can preach, to the world, you're going to be a last day prophet like Tony Alamo is. So I'm like, oh yeah. And you know, I still had that. Um, it was like a religious type, uh, grandiose thing. Like, or I felt like maybe I'm a last day prophet, you know? Okay. You know, you run into a lot of those. You see those people all the time. They know yeah. the day the world's going to end and all that stuff. Right. Yeah. They think they're a last day prophet. Yeah. So I thought that, and I went out to the airport uh, baggage claim. There's hundreds of people in the baggage claim and I got on my knees and I just started screaming prayers and man, then the police came and that wasn't good. So, yeah. So then they take you to the hospital. So is this when, this is when you first had the diagnosis of schizophrenia yeah. and they told yeah, you Nashville. it's, it's incurable and you needed to take like eight to 10 medications. And this yeah, is every day. This was on your uh, 23rd birthday. You spent in a mental hospital. Yeah. Yeah. My 23rd birthday. I'm now 40. So yeah. 17, but, 18. And then that's even more confusing though, because so the doctors are saying you need to take this medication, but then you're still hearing the voices and they're telling you to dump the medication and throw it away. Yeah. yeah and the medication is like a thousand dollars. if You don't have insurance. So my poor mother, the uh, insurance only cover, I think two bottles of, you know, two uh, sets of the pills. Like if you lost a set, they'd give you another set. But if you lost the second set, they won't give it, give you it. So yeah, it was costing my mom thousands of dollars. My mother, my poor mother. 
Yeah. Did, did the like medic dumping them? Because yeah. I hear the voices tell me not to take the medication. Okay, because it was of the devil, you know. So the medication so, didn't. It wasn't a cure all. It didn't solve everything. No, uh, yeah. you know, people ask me all the time. Uh, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a professional mm-hmm. counselor or anything like that. They ask me, all, "Should I take medication? Is it wrong? What does God say about medication? The Bible, blah blah blah." And I always, uh, it's up to the individual person. There's nothing wrong with taking medication. That's the first thing I want to say. For me personally, uh, medication helped tone down the voices to a place where I could have a conversation a little bit with someone. So it wasn't like all I was hearing was voices all day and I couldn't even concentrate. Mm-hmm. So it helped me tone down my brain. Okay. Does so, that make sense? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. So function. Yeah. So, I mean, you've got this diagnosis, which they basically gave you, it's like, you've said it's a, it's a death sentence, right? You're never, they said, you're never going to work again. You're going to have to live with your mom forever. You're never going to have a family. You're never going to be able to do anything. You're just going to be stuck with this disease and and be on these medications. But, um, you start doing recovery work and, uh, talk about that. Yeah, it was beautiful. So, um, I, uh, I don't know how it happened, but I was at, uh, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit because, I mean, there's a lot of detail and you can read my book if you want. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you've read it, but, you know, your yeah. listeners can read it. But basically, I ended up uh, getting a, a small part-time position at a recovery-based mental health nonprofit that worked with uh, Maricopa County in Arizona here. Mm-hmm. And they they basically believe that people could recover from mental health or uh, live a, a full life with a diagnosis still. Mm-hmm. So they believed in, you know, living in recovery, not just taking diagnosis and, and giving up, but actually have hope for the future. And it was like the perfect place for me at the time. I really needed hope that I wasn't going to be a, a schizophrenic man for the rest of my life. Cause when I was younger, I had a lot of dreams. I was really good at football, baseball. I was smart. I mean, I, I remember dreaming people used to tell me I could play uh, maybe professional baseball because I was, I played in the little league world series um, you know, so I had a lot of dreams. I never dreamt that I would be 23 years old, sitting on my mom's couch, listening to voices and having no hope for the future. So, um, so the, the mental health company that I got a little job at for seven hours a week, helping in their events program really was a blessing to me. And uh, yeah, get, you said that, it, yeah, you're serving ahead, meals no. and helping clients at social events. And, yeah. and the important yeah. thing that I love about this, I mean, you went from 12 hour days to seven hours a week, but this little job for seven hours a week. It gave you a sense of purpose. Yeah. Yeah. It gave me a sense of purpose. I was still dealing with voices and mental health stuff. Um, while, you know, first, I think year, year two, when I worked there, but it, it helped me feel like I wasn't alone, you know, um, isolation. I mean, that's the first thing that happens to people who are struggling with, uh, uh, serious mental illness is usually you get isolated. Your family doesn't know what to do, or you just sit in your room and play video games or watch movies or sit there and just listen to voices or, you know, a lot of these people are isolated. And I always tell people, you know, don't isolate yourself, get involved with something. So you get out of the house and maybe you'll meet a friend or a prayer partner or just someone that can encourage you once in a while. Yeah. You know, I've seen a lot of people, uh, you know, I've had to deal with a lot of people who've committed suicide in the mental health field. And yeah. Cause they're alone. That's rough. And, and that's unfortunately, that's a, something that you come across when you work in mental health is you realize you can't save everybody. But yeah. you also I think you had an important revelation in all this, too, is that, um, you know, you, you say not isolating yourself, but you also realize that you didn't need other people to save you. I think you had this thought like you needed a minister or a monk or Tony Alamo or somebody else to come in and save you. And you realized 
that you could do it with by yourself with, by praying with yourself. And you recorded yourself reading the Bible and listened to it. And you did a lot of this work on your own. Yeah. So I had people help me along the way. You know, sure. So I remember somebody gave me a book about, uh, you know, spiritual stuff that helped me a lot of spiritual deliverance. Um, I don't know if your listeners ever heard of deliverance, but it's where you, you know, you cast off or cast out evil spirits from your mind, your body or whatever. Um, and then I had a mentor for a while that helped me, uh, in, uh, in, uh, you know, Later on, like uh, when I first started getting freer from uh, schizophrenia, this person came in and helped me a lot more. Hmm. I learned a lot of truth about the Bible that I was confused about. And so I'm thankful for having a mentor for a little bit in my life. But um, <clears throat> what were we talking about? Just how you know, because how you so no, you had you did have help. You did have help. But um, oh, oh, by myself. Yeah, but you did I, a lot I of this by yourself because I just think that's an interesting yeah. th- a revelation. I mean, people look at beating schizophrenia. I mean, the odds are not good, right? It's a very difficult thing. So some of these people may yeah. be listening, going, how did he do it? And I think yeah. that's an important re- revelation. And part of this is that you eventually, you know, ultimately you have to do a lot of the work yourself. And I think that's the problem that's in yeah. the world right now is that people are thinking that a doctor or a counselor or even a politician is going to save them. But ultimately yeah. we, we kind of have to save ourselves. I mean, yes, you had help, of course, you, you know, you're yeah. going to have some people help you, but uh, ultimately if you have to be the one that really desires to, the, to fix the problem. Exactly. So with me, um, I get, uh, so in my ministry, it's the father's friends. If you're mm-hmm. listening. Yeah. I'll put that in the notes website. for sure. Yeah. yeah. Fathersfriends.org. Yes, the fathersfriends.org. Yeah, the yeah. Fathersfriends.org. Uh, there, um, I, I got a lot because I've been on international television. I've, you know, I've traveled the world. I've been to what, 26 countries now. I've wrote, you know, several books. So um, it's uh, uh, people contacted me. I, I write about this in the book when I first got on television with my first book, Defeating Mental Illness. Um, people contact me looking for answers for their child who was suffering or even for themselves. And it, it overloaded my life with burdens for, for these mm-hmm. individuals because I felt like I was the one that had all the answers. And uh, that was just me back then because I was younger. I didn't really understand everything. But soon I found out I didn't have any answers for anybody. And I prayed and prayed and cried. And I asked God, God, what is what is going on? Why can't I help these people the way I want to help them? Why are people still suffering even if I pray for them and I try to help them and mentor them? And he showed me that you know, Jesus said that you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free, shall set you free. And so truth is what sets someone free. And so my ministry now is uh, really trying to help people understand truth. You know, what are the truth? What's the truth that you need in your life for a certain situation? Are you believing a lie? And so I, I go into this in my book about your mindset. What are you actually believing? You know, you're praying every day for money. God, give me money. Give me a new job. Give me blessings. But then you believe you're going to be broke for the rest of your life. Hmm. If you believe you're going to be broke for the rest of your life and you're asking God to make you rich or give you uh, blessings, how are you ever going to receive if you're believing a lie? You're just receiving the lie. Mm-hmm. Isn't, that had to have been a huge part of you beating schizophrenia is believing yeah, that you could. Totally. If you thought totally. it was hopeless, there was no hope that yeah. you probably wouldn't be here right now. Yeah. So my mother, she, uh, my poor mother called every church in, in Phoenix area. I was living in Phoenix at the time with her and she called every church. She called everybody, help my son, help him, help him. And no one could help me. They just said, well, you know, we're not really specialized in that. He needs mental health care, but there was um, uh, some minister way out in California. She called for help and he told, he had just encouraged her and said, you know, I, I prayed for your son. I really believe God's going to bring people in his life to help him. He's going to be okay. And that gave my mom hope, but 
the help, you know, I didn't recover from schizophrenia for two, three years. You know, I had to work through a lot of stuff. I mean, you got a voice telling you every day to kill yourself. That's a tough voice to deal with, you know, and then they, then the voice tells you you're no good and you'll never be married. You'll never, you know, you'll never get free from this. Schizophrenia is incurable. And, you know, over and over again, you're a loser, you're fat. I mean, whatever the voice or the thought process is, you have to break those things with truth. You have, I had to fight. I'm going to break this thing. I'm going to break it with truth. That's amazing. First truth is, yeah. The first truth is I don't believe anything's incurable. I truly believe Jesus did miracles and I believe God still does miracles today. So that was the first truth that helped me have hope that, Hey, maybe I can get free from schizophrenia. Maybe I can overcome this thing. Mm-hmm. And, and that so, was like the driving force. Yeah. Like, so that's, and then, going. yeah. And then you just, you keep doing the praying all the day, every day you're going yeah. to church, you're working. And um, eventually you start working for, uh, you start working your way up in the mental health stuff and you start taking yeah. fewer and fewer medications. You didn't get off your medications instantly. You were not healed yeah. instantly, but yeah. eventually with the doctor support, your family support, you wean off the medications. And then this is crazy. This is like such a happy moment. You get this decertification. What is, is, is that what it's called? Decertification letter Yeah, it arrives in your mailbox and it yeah. says you do not have schizophrenia anymore. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that had so been a great day. Answer. Oh yeah. So I didn't even know a letter like that existed. So I worked in the behavioral health field. I went from seven hours a week. Then I worked 20 hours a week and I had to wean myself off of social security because social security, you know, you work full time and you're on social security. You almost make the same amount when you're working full time. If you don't make a lot of money, you know, mm. 30 grand a year yeah. equals out to pretty much social security. If you don't pay tax, you know, the tax right. bracket and then the free health care. And so I struggled with that. I was like, you know, I don't want to be on social security. I don't want to live off the system. You know, that's okay. If the listeners out there are on social security, there's not no condemnation live on social security. If you want, you know, I, I love you. It's no big deal. But for me personally, it was something I wanted to, you know, I was young. I wanted to have my own family someday. Yeah. So I, I said, you know, I'm going to just go and I'm going to work full time. I might not have the best benefits like I had on social security, but I'm just going to do this. So I did it. I, then I got a, uh, a team lead position, which is kind of like uh, case management, and then after that, I got an administrator position, which is uh, I reported to the director or the vice president of the company. And I had, uh, I think, five, six managers underneath me, counselors. I mean, I was signing clinical notes um, and all I had was a GED. But you had like 40 time. or 50 employees underneath you, right? Yeah, I have all these employees. I'm running and this is, five or six HUD. This housing. is the same hospital that, that diagnosed you with schizophrenia. And now you're not running this hospital. T- no, no, oh, no. We, ran, we ran a crisis center yeah. uh, over in West Phoenix, but no, I, it's not the same hospital, but I used to receive services from yeah, this yeah. company. Okay. So imagine that I used to <laughs> be the client yeah. and now I'm like running everything. Right. That's amazing. You know, HUD housing. We had the, uh, we had a program in the mental hospital in Mesa over in West Phoenix, the crisis services. We, I used to get crisis call line two in the morning. I'd have to go to somebody's house. One time a lady tried to jump off a third story balcony. I had to grab her off the balcony before she died. I mean, wild stuff. I went to somebody's house. They had a butcher knife and their, uh, their, you know, their, their husband just passed away. So they had a, the urn in their lap and they had a butcher knife. And I had to talk her out of stabbing herself in the neck with that, mm. all sorts of stuff I had to go through. So I got really trained in crisis services and mental health stuff. So I have a lot of experience in this, but it's really amazing that I was, I used to be a client and yeah. now here I was an administrator. Yeah. That's, that's wow. crazy. And then you decide yeah. to write this book, the first book you had defeating yeah. mental illness. And, yeah. um, 
And then what, did you quit your job before you went on Sid Roth's show or did, was it after Sid Roth's show? Uh, so Sid Roth's show was uh, in 2013, I think in November. And I uh, felt led to retire from mental health in March, 2013, and just go into the ministry with the father's friends full time. Mm-hmm. So it was after I uh, left the mental health field. Okay. So I left the mental health in 2013. I had my book on Sid Roth program. It's called defeating mental illness. It's in French, Spanish, and English. It's helped a ton of people. It's really basic, really small, and it's for everybody. So if, if anybody out there is suffering from mental health stuff, it's called defeating mental illness. You can get it on Amazon or whatever, and it's real small, but I think it'll encourage you a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's, it's great. I read that one too. And then, um, so you're doing the ministry and that's going pretty well. And then this yeah. is just a random little fun thing that happens in your life. You, yeah. you, you're live streaming for the ministry and a lightning bolt comes down right next to you. It didn't hit you, but it was like right next to you. And there's a video of this and the video goes viral. And now you're on national news. You're on inside edition. Like talk about that. <laughs> uh, okay. So this is pretty wild. So when live stream on cell phones first came out in like 2000, was it 14, 15? Do you remember Periscope by Twitter? Yeah. It's called Periscope. Yeah. yeah. Well, they came out first. They were like the first one mm-hmm. besides like livestream.com. Right. But so I could live stream from, so I felt like I was supposed to move to uh, Manhattan. I lived in Harlem and I felt like I was supposed to move there. So when I got there, I sold everything, went to Harlem. I was living in Harlem. I'm like, what am I supposed to do? Like do ministry in New York city? Am I supposed mm-hmm. to work? I mean, it's expensive here. This is a real big faith test for me. So back in 2015, I'm, I'm sitting there and all of a sudden, right when I move there, I find out about this live streaming thing. You can live stream from your iPhone. And I'm like, wow, this is amazing. So I get like the little the little rig that you, you can hold. the What is that? Selfie stick. Mm. You can hold the selfie stick. I got one of those. And I start going to Times Square and like selfie myself, praying for people, encouraging people in their faith in Jesus and going to the subway stations and talking to all these interesting individuals all over New York City. And I started getting a lot of followers on Periscope. And, and then I moved to France. I had a buddy over in uh, the south of France in, uh, in uh, what is it called? Saint-Tropez. So I lived out in France for a little bit. And I was doing live streams there. Then I went to Italy. I backpacked, basically, with God. I, I, I see it as, you know, my book's called Becoming God's Friend. So I see it that God allowed me to backpack for like three months or four months with him. And I went to India, Israel. I live streamed the blood moons from the uh, the the, uh, the Temple Mount over in old Jerusalem, you know, when they had the blood moon, I, I got to live stream that. And then, uh, I went to, you know, Paris, I went to, yeah, you saw the places. whole world. Yeah. I went to Russia, China, I went to Japan for my birthday. Yeah. It was really fun. It was a really great time with just me and God and we were live streaming. I mean, I was, I remember live streaming in Amsterdam. I go into like one of those, uh, marijuana coffee shops. I'd have my selfie stick talking to people. They'd all be smoking five. Like, hey, you know, Jesus, you want to talk about the Lord? They're like, what? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Got to pray for, you know, you never know where people are at. You know, the manager of one of these coffee shops, she was showing me all the marijuana and I was just asking her questions. And I started talking to her on live stream. Like, hey, I'm live streaming right now. And it was new. So people thought it was really cool when it hmm. first came out. Facebook live and Facebook at the time was just mentions. I think it was called hmm. Facebook mentions. Like you okay. a celebrity to have it. Yeah. But so it was like really cool to live stream people would be like, they'd, you know, they think you're kind of like a media guy, you know, it was kind of fun. It was really fun actually. And then, yeah. So this one lady, she, she told, she broke down and she cried. She said, you know, I used to go to church when I was younger and, you know, I just lost my way and, and I'm really looking for God and I really appreciate your prayer if you could pray for me. So I got to pray for this lady, like who runs like a 
coffee shop, smoke shop thing in Amsterdam, like huh. totally random. You know, I've been to nightclubs and prayed for people. I've been everywhere and prayed for people because I truly believe God loves people and, and everybody is looking for hope. And so my job, I think, as uh, you know, somebody that ministers the gospel is to give people hope. And if you have hope, you can hold on to faith. And so that, that's what I believe. So, yeah, you, you talk anyway, about that around the world. Yeah, with a, your, the chapter 11, Life's Purpose, you say hope is so important. important. Hopelessness is a major reason why people struggle with depression. And also hopelessness, that's what leads many people to suicide. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. that how do you give people hope? I mean, how do people find hope? Because sometimes you just feel hopeless and you're just like, you don't know yeah. where to start. Yeah. So... Um, <clears throat> So in the book, I talk about how the personalities, remember the misters, Mr. Mm-hmm. Depression, Mr. Yeah. Schizophrenia, Mr. Religion, whatever, um, Mr. Self-Righteous or whatever I had in mm-hmm. there, but or I have in there. Um, so Mr. Mr. Depression, he's the one that I go over this. It's basically when I was suffering from a D, I mean, I was in a dark place where I couldn't even, and this is when I was a minister, mm-hmm. like I was a preacher and I'm uh, suffering with this deep depression, dark depression. And, and the first thing I had to understand was that the feeling I was feeling was not actually truly my true self. And it's hard to, if you, if you don't get it, it's hard to kind of get it, but I got this kind of, I believe it's a revelation about how we, um, we have our true selves that who, you know, we're made to be mm-hmm. and then these fake personalities or however you look at them, maybe a chemical imbalance or whatever it is going on. It's not truly you, you know, your soul, your spirit, it's not really truly you. And so I learned to divide myself from these personalities or these people or however you look at it, you know, these strongholds or, you know, because my book I wrote is really for anybody to, to read. I mean, you could be a Christian, you could be a Muslim, you could be an atheist. You can read this book and understand, you know, kind of, I try to explain it in different ways. No, you do. You you do a great job. And then one of them you talk about in chapter 12, Mr. Condemnation. So, cause like you believe that at one point you said, um, if you accidentally drove even one mile over the speed limit, and, and you would die. And if you die in the car accident, you'd go to hell for driving yeah. one mile over the speed limit. So, yeah. and I mean, people, you can, again, that, that can be, you know, you could be a Muslim or an atheist or whatever, but people sometimes put these perfectionistic ideas on themselves. Yeah. Like they have to be perfect. So talk about that in condemnation, what that means. Yeah. So condemnation is really guilt, uh, you know, guilt and feeling judged. Mm-hmm. You know, when you feel like you're guilty, condemned, judged, uh, it's really hard to pull out of that because um, it, it, it's strong. So I'll just go biblical. The Bible says that the the power uh, the power of sin is the law. So if, if you think about the law of Moses, that was designed to show people sin. That was designed to condemn the world and put them all under uh, under sin, so that they can look towards. Christ as their savior so that they can be forgiven and that they can be released from condemnation. So condemnation is like your number one enemy. And the only way to really overcome condemnation in my own personal belief is through the blood of Jesus and the the forgiveness that God gives us through Jesus Christ. So that's what I used to, that's what I used to overcome condemnation. Cause I, I, I see it as like a power, you know, people get 
they feel condemned. They do something stupid. And then they, for the rest of their life, they think about this thing they did. And then that leads to other things in their life. Mm -hmm. So, you know, somebody might, well, why do you struggle with drugs? Well, I just feel horrible about myself because, you know, I, uh, my, my wife divorced me 10 years ago and I just couldn't get over it. I felt, you know, it was, it was horrible. I, I yelled at her one time and she left me or whatever happened, right? Just example. And then now you're struggling with drugs or alcohol because you feel condemned because you screwed up in life. You yelled at your wife 10 years ago and she left you. And now you just feel condemned all the time. And it leads to other life choices that are negative. Right. And then like you talk yeah. about with like Tony Alamo, it's like the opposite. Now you've yeah. learned because with Tony Alamo, he was, he was saying God is this mean, strict, and he, you know, he's like almost excited about people burning alive in, in the lake of fire and hell and all this fire and oh, brimstone yeah. and stuff. And, yeah. and you're saying you're kind of taking a different approach to interpret, interpreting the Bible as more God is loving and, and uh, loves you the way you are and, and, you know, forgives you and all that kind of stuff yeah. and more positive. And I think that that helped you get through a lot of the mental illness. Yeah. So as I, uh, as I grew in my relationship with God through prayer and worship and the Bible and, and, uh, you know, and renewing my mind on truth. I started realizing the character of God is way different than a lot of people, especially a cult leader would tell you, you know, the Bible says that God is a loving father and that it's God's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So he's not trying to keep people out of heaven. He's not trying to keep people out of having eternal life or having a good life or being happy in life. He actually wants you to have a good life. He wants you to be happy and he wants to give you those heart's desires that you have. You know, when you have a wrong mindset of the character of God, then that can can ruin your life. You could always think you're condemned or that you're no good or, you know, or maybe you think God doesn't exist because he didn't answer one prayer you prayed 10 years ago. I mean, I don't know, but God is a loving father and he hears your prayers when you pray from your heart. He really does. I learned that when you pray to God in the name of Jesus, he will answer you, but it's usually not in your timing. And that's where people they lose faith or they lose hope because they want something now they want something instantly. They, you know, they need their new job next week, not next month. Right. So patience is a virtue, right? For sure. Yeah. Well, it's a great book and I had some afterthoughts. Um, let's talk about mental health a little bit, like the, your perspective okay. on mental health and how we treat it in this country. Cause that's like always been a, a, a subject that I, I mean, I spent 17 years in, in mental health education, I guess, but um, you know, cause a lot of times I feel like mental health, they just jump to give you the medication, which I'm not telling people not to take a medication. It may work. It may be effective, but I think mental health illness can also be, uh, treated with obviously spiritual, what you're talking about. A lot of what helped you is the spiritual side, but also, I mean, do you feel like diet exercise and meditation or, uh, like skill building is important too? Like there's other pieces yeah. that can help. Yeah. Well, you know, I, my thing is Chuck is that I, I used to think that I wrote about this in the book too, is that I used to think that there was a formula that mm -hmm. you could use a formula for everyone. If we just had the right formula for everyone, then everybody'd be better. Mm -hmm. But the truth is, is that everybody's an individual and they have their own individual traumas and they have their own individual chemicals in their brain. You know, they all right. have different genetic codes, mm -hmm. you know, all different fingerprints. So everybody's different. So I like, um, you know, the concept, I remember when I worked in the behavioral health field, we kind of had like a plan and then we had like kind of like a menu of things that we would do with the individual, what worked best for them. I think that is, is good, you know, but honestly, I, I think that there needs to be in the whole medical and, uh, mental health, everything needs to be recovery focused. It should never be that somebody gets a diagnosis and there's no hope. 
you know, even if somebody is diagnosed with stage four cancer, there shouldn't be no hope. They should at least encourage the person that they, you know, Hey, you know, it is bad. You could end up passing away next week or next month or whatever, but we want to offer you some hope. Here's a number to the pastor. Here's the number to your local, uh, you know, your local group that you can go to, or, you know, we're going to bring somebody in every week to come encourage you. You know, maybe somebody needs to start a nonprofit that just goes out and encourages people who have been diagnosed with bad stuff. I mean, you never know, Mm -hmm. but I think that there needs to be a different focus than just here's your diagnosis. Here's some pills. And, you know, you can never get through this because, you know, it's a, a horrible thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everybody needs hope. Right. It's a, even just like, hope you know, reading your book, I think gives people hope or, I mean, I, I feel like my podcast does that a lot of times. I mean, there's a lot yeah. of inspiring uh, stories that I've, I've had people yeah. on here telling amazing things that people have gone on to be movie stars or rock stars or, that have dealt with, you know, horrible issues that in their past yeah. that, and they, they rise above it somehow. So what advice do you have for people? I know some of the things you've said, like, don't isolate, you know, if you're have if you're dealing with mental illness, um, try to have hope and, and focus on the positive. Is there yeah. anything else? Any other advice? Yeah. So if you could, so the way I explain it in my book is like I said, like they're almost like personalities. They're almost like people that you agree with. And then that person kind of tries to take over your mind or your emotions. Mm-hmm. It sounds kind of weird, but if you think about, let's just use depression or suicidal thoughts or ideations, you know, if you think about depression or suicide, that thing comes upon you and then it makes you obsessed with it. You start obsessing with being depressed. You start obsessing with how you feel emotionally. You start obsessing with your lack. So I've noticed a lot of times with people with depression or suicidal thoughts, they're thinking of what they lack. Maybe their boyfriend dumped them. So they lack their boyfriend, the love that their boyfriend gave them. Maybe a tragedy happened, other tragedy. Maybe they lost their job and they feel like they can't feed their children. You know, there's some sort of, something that is being told to them and they focus on it and they focus on it. And pretty soon you empower what you're focusing on. So when you start saying, I am depressed, I am suicidal. I am going to kill myself. I am this, I am that you're now making, I am statements and taking on these things and they building and they become stronger. So then I go into kind of a spiritual thing where I believe they kind of are like castles or military strongholds that build brick by brick. Mm. And some people have just built these mindsets for years and years. And now they got this strong castle where the, 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 uh, these thoughts just and these emotions overtake you. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, the uh, one thing you can do if you struggle with this stuff is what I've learned to do is, is to see them, to see the depression, to see the negative, but to not accept it as part of who you really are. Mm-hmm. Instead, just look at it and go, yes, I do feel depressed. That is what is I'm experiencing. There's nothing wrong with experiencing yeah. depression. You have to acknowledge the emotion. You can't yeah, deny yeah, yeah, it. Yeah, Cause absolutely. like you said, nothing you have to have the truth. So if you're yeah, feeling so, sad, that's okay. But then what are you going to do about it? Yeah. And, and then don't let yourself feel condemned. Don't go into the feeling of condemnation for struggling with depression. Mm-hmm. See yeah. what happens is people start feeling depressed and then they get that little voice that says, Hey, you got to cook dinner for your family tonight. You're depressed. You're a horrible mother. Look at you. Mm-hmm. See, and then it starts stacking. It starts telling you other things mm-hmm. and then it moves into what you should, you know, you should just kill yourself. You know, you You know, it's just like, whatever, just shut up. Yeah. Well, I think in part of it too, though, like you talk about, you know, what we talked about earlier with you taking that job, because you're talking about, you know, when you're depressed and you're having that mental illness, you're just so focused on yourself 
But then taking yeah. that job, isn't that kind of a distraction? And now you're focusing exactly. on someone else. And now exactly. you're helping and it gave a sense of purpose, even feeding meals for whatever the mental illness people or the homeless, whatever it was like, yeah. it gave you some sense of purpose and you're doing something for somebody else. And I think yeah. that's a big thing that's lacking for a lot of people too, is that they have no sense of purpose. I mean, there's so many people that how many people lost right. their jobs during this pandemic and yeah. probably feel not a sense of purpose. Exactly. And you know, it's actually biblical, Chuck. It, it, the Bible says, uh, uh, I think it's in the book of James, it says, pray for others. So you'll also uh, pray for others. So you'll also be healed or pray for, yeah, pray for others to be healed. So you'll also be healed. So in a way, helping other people or praying for other people or feeding other people is going to add, um, you know, you're sowing into something that you could also reap back. You know, Jesus mm -hmm. said, you know, uh, press down, shaken over men will give unto your bosom. So when you are, when you are giving people mercy, you're going to receive mercy someday. When you are giving people hope, you're going to receive hope someday when you're, you know, you know, when you're, um, being proactive, you know what I'm saying? Like you're mm -hmm. being proactive in something. I believe that that actually helps you in your own need. Mm -hmm. No, that's, yeah. it's all great stuff. I mean, obviously you, you talk about Jesus and God a lot and you're obviously, yeah, I love you're, Jesus, so, obviously yeah. you're a Christian, I don't but apologize about that. No, I don't. I don't yeah. ask you to, I mean, I wouldn't yeah. have you on the show, but cool. I do think it's interesting because I mean, we can have this conversation. I'm not like really a practicing Christian right now. And, uh, do you think that there's, but I feel like for a lot of people, it's like, you have to pick a side and you have to be on the fence. Like, do you feel like there's discrimination against Christian? Cause I feel like I see that. And I'm, again, I, I'm not a Christian, but I see a, a lot of Christians being treated poorly because of their beliefs. And I try to respect beliefs of every different religion or, you know, atheists or whatever, but how do you feel? Do you, feel, do you see that as well? Uh, Repeat the question exactly. Just do you see, do you feel like Christians are kind of discriminated against or, or people have stereotypes about, about Christians or like you, you feel yeah. treated differently sometimes because of your religious beliefs? Well, people, everybody has different experiences. So somebody could have grown up in a church and been abused by a priest or a pastor. And then now they're, they don't like churches because of their experience. Mm -hmm. you know, I, uh, you know, I didn't like church for a long time because of my experience with the cult. I thought everybody was maybe a cult leader. And so I, I know that as a minister, when I talk with someone about Jesus, they, they've already, uh, you know, in America, you know, I preached in remote villages in Pakistan. So right. you know, people there never heard about Jesus, but in America, most people, you know, watch movies or something and seen something about Jesus. So they know a little bit about it, but about him. But so you have to realize that everybody has their own uh, internal uh, beliefs already. See, so my job is to uh, try to figure out first what they believe, you know, what, what do you really believe? And then have maybe a conversation about what I believe and then see if it lines up, you know, if, if I can help them find a little bit more truth in life. So my job isn't to force people to become Christian. My job is to offer people forgiveness of their sins through the blood of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus saying eternal life through Jesus. So that's my job. My job is to plant seeds in people's hearts. Um, so. Well, and I, you've done, and besides yeah. the, the Christian stuff, I mean, you've also done yeah. work where you've helped people uh, in, was it Kenya where you went to Africa and you, you gave them yeah. all uh, like these uh, sandals and stuff. Cause they're so poor. No, they're uh, Pakistan. Was that Pakistan when you gave them the sandals? Yeah, churches in Pakistan. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We started some churches in Pakistan years ago. Yeah. And you gave, and you, and you sent a lot of food and, and resources. Yeah, to try we to fed tons of, we fed hundreds and hundreds of, uh, Pakistanis, uh, Christian Pakistanis, uh, the churches over there are just really, really poor. Cause they have a caste system in the area where, um, where the churches are at, where I traveled to. 
And uh, they didn't have any, you know, they shut everything down and these people are day laborer people mm-hmm. and there's everything shut down. They have no money. So there were people killing themselves because they couldn't feed their families. They felt horrible. So they killed themselves. <sighs> so we were sending money for food and, um, and it was, uh, it was uh, amazing. You know, we were in the new there, the church, my, my friend there was in the newspaper in in the national news in Pakistan for the food outreach he was doing. Yeah, that's great. Well, that's great stuff. And I always like to end each episode with a charity and, and I guess, for you, the, your charity is one and the same because it's uh people can donate to your ministry, right? Fathersfriends.org. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we're a nonprofit organization of 513C. We uh we help, we have a prayer line. It's called uh the Eternal Lifeline. It's one eight 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 know him. So K-N-O-W him. People can call it 24-7 if they need prayer. They just need to vent or you know, I get all sorts of calls on that. So um, that's a prayer line that we have. We put billboards up. We've done all sorts of things. Um, also, I travel for ministry. Um, and so I'm actually currently in uh, South America. That's where I'm at right now. So that's kind of neat. Yeah, and that's then, exciting. Uh, been all over the world. Yeah. 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 So um, it's, 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 it's fantastic if people want to help. Um, I don't ask people for money because I know that God takes care of the ministry. But if somebody out there gets their heart touched, they can always send donation or donate online at the father's friends.org. Okay. And then people can buy the book on Amazon, correct? Yeah. On Amazon, okay. they can go to the website. And I think um, you can go to the online store and click and it'll take you to Amazon too, or Barnes and Nobles and all that stuff. Oh, it's all know, there too. Okay. And then they can, of course, follow you on all the social medias. You're on everything. Yeah, Twitter, social media stuff. Yeah. Nick Grimsman, just yeah. type in, you can Google me. You can find all the stuff. And then did we talk about the uh, lightning strike? Yeah, we well, we started to, and then you started bit. talking about live streaming. Do you want to talk about the lightning strike? Oh more? yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, we so can talk about it real quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, this was like, a fun one. It happened. So yeah, quick story. Live streaming, uh, and it was uh, it was started to storm, and I was headed over underneath this awning to get away from the wind and the rain, and then all of a sudden, boom! This lightning strike hit, and I don't know how close it was to me. Uh, this one expert from one university said it was under hundred feet from me, but it was loud. Knocked my cell phone out of my hands. And I had, it was kind of funny too. Cause I say some funny comments cause I'm a goofball, but, and then that got picked up. I mean, I woke up in the morning, I post on Instagram, a little clip. It got picked up by good morning, America, ABC world news tonight, had it on there. My dad called me and said, Hey, I just randomly saw you on Fox news. And what's I mean, it? Wasn't was on, on the MTV show too. Uh, it's on ridiculous. It's still on ridiculous. Ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. TV show. They make fun of me on there. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so it's, so it's funny. And I, then I was in the news and, uh, uh, I did a Netflix show in Europe interview for the, some wild weather show. Then I was on, um, I mean, weird Africa, Africa websites. I mean, I was <laughs> everywhere. I mean, it was a yeah. worldwide, but real quick, the, the funny part about that story is two weeks before uh, that lightning strike, I was talking to God in prayer. I was just like, God, you know, you know, I really um, feel like a friend of God. You know, I try to be a friend of, you know, friend with God, you know, I'm not special or anything. I just, you know, developed a relationship with God. I believe personally. Okay. So <clears throat> everybody's at different levels. Right. So, um, so I, I just, uh, so I was praying. I'm like, God, you know, I goof off. Sometimes I ask funny things. I said, you know, I've been on international TV with Sid Roth TV show that was on all these, uh, you know, Christian broadcasts all over the world <clears throat> for my first book. And then, then I was like, you know, um, uh, I said, you know, I've never been on like on uh, national media. Like, how would you ever get a preacher on national, like me on national TV? And then two weeks later, boom, out of the blue, here I was on national TV. So. Crazy. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I just like, I think it's cool that you, 
you're manifesting what you're wanting, what you're wishing. You know, you, you tell me these things all the time. I'm going to, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And I say, you're not going to do that. And then sure enough, it it usually does happen. And so people could say that's the power of God or power of prayer or power of your mind or whatever, but you've done, you've done some amazing things. And so it's it's been, uh, people need to check out the book and uh, I appreciate you doing this interview. Hey, it was fun, Chuck. Thanks. All right. We'll say goodbye to our audience. All right. See audience. Goodbye audience. And, uh, Nick, Grimsman, author and preacher. Make sure to get his book, Becoming God's Friend. It's available on Amazon or Barnes and Noble. His ministry is The Father's Friends. The website is thefathersfriends.org. It's in the show notes. If you want to learn more or you can make a donation there, uh, you can also follow him on all social media to keep up with what he's doing. And if you enjoyed this episode and you want to support my show, Uh, The number one thing you can do right now is subscribe to my YouTube channel. That will really help me out. I'm really trying to grow that. Uh, You can also subscribe to the podcast via Spotify or Apple or wherever else you're listening. Uh, And as always, your likes, comments, and shares on social media as well as YouTube help me out a lot with the algorithms and stuff. And if you want to go all out, you can write me a review, a positive review, hopefully. And for limited time only, If you send me a screenshot of your review, I will give you a shout out on the next episode. Uh, So far, no one has taken me up on that offer, but it does still stand if anybody's interested. So thank you so much for listening. Have a great rest of your day. And remember, shoot for the moon, baby.